Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to episode 95 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day. And today we're sitting down with Dr. Christian George, who serves as the curator of the C.H. Spurgeon Library and has also recently released volume one of the Lost Sermons of C.H. Spurgeon. In this episode, we explore what Spurgeon has to say to pastors and ministry leaders today, and we have some fun as I quiz Christian on how Spurgeon might respond to some current issues today's church is facing. I'm sure you'll enjoy this week's episode with Dr. Christian George. Christian, it's so good to have you with us on today's episode. Welcome to Church Leaders. Thanks so much, Jason. Yeah, um, now you're a seminary professor of historical theology. You've published several books. You write Bible study curriculum. You've been published in a number of theological journals. You're a contributor to many ministry blogs and sites. But you also serve as the curator of the Spurgeon Library, and you've recently edited and released Volume 1 of the Lost Sermons of C.H. Spurgeon. So Spurgeon is often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, and that's, that's kind of how he's known. Right. Uh, and as you well know, much of our audience, uh, church leaders, is made up of preachers pastors, ministry leaders. So to kind of start off, in thinking of pastors around the world who are preparing sermons week in and week out and sharing the message of God with their people, what can preachers today learn from preachers of the past like Spurgeon? I mean, that's such a great question. And it's really a, a question, Jason, that I've built sort of my, my vocation around. You know, what does the dead have to say to the living? What does Charles Spurgeon have to say to those of us who are doing ministry, who are training ministers? You know, one reason I'm giving my, my life uh, to kind of holding up Spurgeon's arms is because I believe he has so much to say. I mean, when you read Spurgeon's sermons, I, I think the main thing is that he gets his listener, he gets his reader to Christ very quickly. He preaches in such a way as to elevate Jesus Christ in a way that, I, you know, you'd be hard-pressed, I think, to find any other preacher in the last 500 years who is so Christocentric. He's so Christ-centered. In fact, his whole life orbited, I think you could say, around the reality that Jesus Christ is the answer to the world's greatest problems. So for pastors today, as they look back, and, and specifically talking about Spurgeon, as they look to how he proclaimed the good news of Christ— the fact that Jesus really was the center of all that he did, all that he said, um, all that he a shared is, is, is key. Absolutely. And, you know, only when Christ is at the center, not politics, not presidents, when Jesus Christ occupies the center of who we are, you know, it's only then that our churches, our congregations, uh, our students, our families, it's only then that all of that is centered you know, Spurgeon has uh, this this really great line in uh, in sermon number 14 in the Lost Sermons, volume one. And by the way, I go through these sermons every morning and, uh, you know, it's a labor of love. It's a labor of scholarship. But at the end of the morning, man, I'm just weeping, you know, reading about how much this young, zealous preacher, he's just a teenager, how much he loved Jesus Christ and how that one reality can branch out into every one of every aspect of our of our ministries. But he says this in Sermon 14, think much on grace, Christian. Think much on grace. And so I, you know, Helmut Tilica once said that Spurgeon was a combustion of two things, oxygen and grace. 
And I just think that's a, a model for those of us who are in ministry, those of us who are training for those in ministry. Why has Spurgeon endured among so many other voices? Why do you think that Spurgeon's voice has endured all these years? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I, I think there are several answers. I think the first one is that, you know, why is Spurgeon relevant today? Why is he endured I think he's relevant today because Jesus Christ is relevant today. I think he's endured because God has not allowed his word to disintegrate. You know, every time we open the, that sacred book and read its its word, it's powerful and it's fresh. And so I think another reason could be the fact that Spurgeon exposits the Bible in such a fresh new way. I mean, he's the most uh, tweeted preacher, the dead preacher on the Internet. You know, here's somebody who doesn't need, you might say, 140 characters to get the gospel across. His style matches the simplicity of the gospel message. And uh, that really is what set him apart in his own day. You know, Jason, in the Victorian era, uh, a typical Victorian sermon uh, would be very dry. In fact, Spurgeon once said, you know, some ministers would make good martyrs because they're so dry they would burn up quickly. <laughs> and so uh, Spurgeon decided to, you know, splash his congregation with all the color of the Bible, with all of the color in the attributes of God. And so I think we lose little over time. When we read a Spurgeon sermon, it's almost as if he's right there, simply in the very room, you know, maybe with a cup of coffee or whatever he drank in his hand, talking to us about the, the beauties uh, and the mysteries of Scripture. That brings up a point here that I noticed. Uh, one of the cool features in that uh, first volume of Spurgeon's Lost Sermons are these graphs that you put in there that really break down the data behind his sermons. It's pretty interesting. He seemed mm -hmm. to be very well balanced. 45% or so were Old Testament. 55% of his sermons came from the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's said in there that his longest sermon was 571 words, and his shortest was only 85 words. Right. Average 196 words. So it kind of goes back to um, no wonder he's so tweetable because uh, he was very succinct. Now, was this just referring to his written out notes? Yeah, so basically in that section of this book, um, and by the way, we decided to make the inside of the book as beautiful as we possibly could. Every page is full color. And, you know, for 12 volumes, 600, 700 pages each, that's quite the undertaking for a publisher. And so, but, but we wanted to make it reflect the gorgeousness of the gospel. And, uh, and so for that particular section, it's sort of an analysis of every sermon. You know, we didn't just want to present the sermons to a 21st century reader who might not know the Victorian context. And so, you know, we spent no small number of hours unpacking, um, unpacking the sermons, explaining different references. Uh, I, I was particularly interested in how many sermons he preached from the Old Testament and the New Testament during his first year of ministry. I mean, how different is that today, you know, Jason, when, you know, if let's say you preach a sermon on, say, Mephibosheth, you know, how many people in your congregation <laughs> would would immediately know that whole story? Right. And uh, of course, the Victorians knew their Bibles better than better than we do, I think. But uh, and so but we wanted to unpack that. We wanted to we wanted to see how far, you know, this teenager walked to each church, sometimes five miles one way just to preach the gospel. You know, here's a young man who's preaching uh, 12 times a week, very often a different sermon every single time. You know, he wasn't just Netflixing his day away. Here's somebody, you know, this young, zealous minister who is burning his calories, making much of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, for millennials today, for young people thinking about the ministry, thinking about what to do with their lives, what a challenging example that is. 
you know, preaching the gospel 12 times a week, you know, for pastors listening to that, you know, that's just staggering. And when we're actually able to read these sermons, which is so fascinating, you know, we can see they're not just, you know, his stream of consciousness thoughts. They're actually beautiful uh, expositions of the Word of God. And you have to remember, you know, here's someone who had a photographic memory. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said he could hold eight thoughts in his mind in a single second and choose one from a shelf. You know, I can barely hold one thought in my mind in a single <laughs> second, and Spurgeon's holding eight. So you're, you're working here clearly with the da Vinci of preaching. You know, this is not your ordinary intellect. Uh, I would use the word anointed. His mind and his heart, they were particularly uh, anointed for the gospel ministry. And so Spurgeon is memorizing long uh, passages of Shakespeare. Uh, he's feeding himself during that first year. He's feeding himself with some of the best preachers like John Bunyan and George Whitfield and Edwards. And so you can see, it's so, it's so cool to see how uh, those preachers that in Spurgeon's day were dead preachers can kind of surface in his own sermons. So that's one, I think, one uh, interesting angle into the law sermons. They show us how Spurgeon became Spurgeon. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, Spurgeon was obviously a popular preacher. Do you believe that Spurgeon would be a celebrity pastor today? You know, um, Spurgeon never wanted the spotlight. He never wanted to be a celebrity. In fact, you know, he's just this preacher in a dying church, 30 members in, in the middle of nowhere when he starts out. And for three years, he preached in that little thatched cottage. You know, when the big city of London called him uh, to preach at New Park Street, which is one of the world's famous Baptist churches there in London, you know, he thought they got the wrong Spurgeon. He couldn't believe anybody wanted to hear him, you know, preach in London. And so really, to your question, he never wanted to be in the spotlight. Uh, and I think that's one reason God elevated him to that kind of um, influence. I mean, look, here's the, this guy is the most popular, not just preacher in the world. When he's 20 years old, a biography is written on his, of his life. You know, he becomes the most popular person in the world in his 20s. In many ways, he was more popular than Queen Victoria and uh, Abraham Lincoln, and so he always resisted that, though. He was a celebrity preacher in the sense that people wanted to hear him preach the gospel. Um, but, you know, he once said just because a church is large doesn't mean it's healthy. It could just mean it's swollen. Wow. So he, w he was aware that just because you have a lot of people there doesn't mean, you know, your congregation is operating out of a biblical model of, um, you know, of, of ministry. And, uh, and look, here's someone who could snap his fingers and get 20,000 people in January in London anywhere he wanted to. And in fact, a denomination almost formed around him. I think it's so fascinating that you and I don't drive down the street and see, you know, first Spurgeon Baptist, second Spurgeon Baptist, you know, as we would maybe a Wesleyan church or a Lutheran church. Uh, Spurgeon shut down that denomination because he thought it elevated his own name above the name of Christ. And so here you have someone who on the one hand, wrestled with pride, you know, he called it his darling sin, but on the other hand, who really sensed the need, um, I think it's the same need that John uh, said, John 3.30, I must decrease, Christ must increase. Spurgeon was a Christ-increasing preacher. That's good stuff. Now, do you think that Spurgeon found his, his popularity as something that was helpful for him to extend the grace of Christ and the truth of, of Christ? Or do you think it was more of a distraction? I think the answer is probably both at different times. 
Um, you know, in some cases, uh, the large crowd in, say, 1856, on October 19th at the Surrey Garden Music Hall, you know, 10,000 people inside, 12,000 outside trying to get in. It was so large that, um, you know, a balcony collapses. Spurgeon watches seven people crushed to death. Uh, you know, he sinks into this great depression. Uh, and by the way, depression and suffering really marked his ministry. And in many ways, it, it was the secret sauce of his ministry. You know, Spurgeon, out of those experiences, out of that brokenness in his own internal life, his spiritual life, he was able to minister the gospel of healing to those who are also going through terrible times. And so Spurgeon's popularity, I, I think, it, it cuts both ways. You know, he preached the gospel to 10 million people by the end of 1892 in person, without the Internet, uh, without the radio, without the television. Wow. I mean, you could just imagine, right. um, you know, what, what he would have done with the Internet. And so in many ways, really going back to your first question, that's why Spurgeon's so popular today. Because, you know, he's still with us. You know, he's still on the Internet. In fact, we're launching a website called Spurgeon.org. We're revamping it. And we're going to put all of Spurgeon's sermons on this website for free. You know, we have a scanner. We're taking pictures of every single page. And, brother, that's 63 volumes of sermons, 150 books. Um, I mean, this is going to be a a real true uh, resource uh, for not just the academy but also the church. Right. Now— um, going back to that event that you talked about where he was preaching and the balcony fell and crushed, it, I, I think I remember that he struggled kind of immediately after that with even considering stepping away from ministry. That's right. Uh, you know, he almost uh, quit the ministry. You know, he was taken home. He passes out of the pulpit and was taken home, as one biographer said, more dead than alive. And he said, for two weeks, you know, I couldn't even look at the Bible. I couldn't even look at it. And by the way, in the Spurgeon Library, we have several of his Bibles. He couldn't even look at those Bibles uh, without shaking and growing increasingly anxious. And uh, late, you know, the, the Holy Spirit did restore his ministry two weeks later. But any time Spurgeon was speaking to these large crowds, and particularly up in Scotland, when they would construct these makeshift uh, auditoriums outside, uh, and they would creak and sway in the wind. You know, Spurgeon always grew uh, nervous. Uh, I'm not sure he ever got over that event because he thought himself to be a murderer because he, he could have called the service off, but he decided to keep preaching. Wow. Uh, what, what do you think Spurgeon would say to pastors today who might hopefully haven't gone through an experience quite that tragic and dramatic, but are wrestling with, you know, difficulties, wrestling with challenges, you know, you know, wrestling with even the idea of, of quitting and stepping away. Uh, hmm. What do you think Spurgeon would speak into their lives? You know, this is really the sweet spot in Spurgeon's ministry. Uh, you know, in 1854, he moves to the poorest part of London. Um, a cholera outbreak killed 10,000 people in his neighborhood in a month. And so his whole ministry was forged, you know, on the anvil of affliction. And so I think he has a lot to say to those of us who in our own time, in our own day, are struggling, whether it's with a deacon, whether it's with a kind of coup in your church, whether it's with a personal health crisis. You know, in 2013, I almost passed away, Jason. Um, my appendix ruptured, and they didn't find out for about a month. And so wow. for 12 months, brother, I went through, you know, the kind of hell that I wouldn't wish on anybody. And it was during kind of those hospital post-surgery moments 
you know, when you're in the hospital and you just sort of hear the noises of the hospital, uh, the beeping of the machines, not knowing if you're going to live another week, it's in those moments when God really uses this preacher uh, to say something important into our hearts. You know, I like this quote, and I think this might minister to those who are listening to this podcast. Um, there's two quotes. The first one is this. You know, after many years of suffering, Spurgeon said, the storm has a bit in its mouth. The storm has a bit, like you control a horse. You know, God is is not surprised by our suffering. He's not surprised by the controversies in our ministry, uh, unfair as they are. Um, in fact, as Joseph told his brothers, you know, you intended this for evil, but God intended this for good. God is big enough, you know, to make good come out of the darkest, deepest most horrible tragedies in our life. And I like this other quote. You know, Spurgeon died in the midst of great controversy. He died in the downgrade controversy, 1892. Uh, He really died of a broken heart. His own brother, James, turned his back on him. His students turned their back on him. And this is what he says. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Fear not the storm. And in many ways, I think Spurgeon learned to fear not the storm by his own storms. Uh, he, he was a museum of physical illness. He had gout. He had what we call lupus today. Um, back then they called it Bright's disease. He once said the greatest earthly blessing God can give us is health, except for sickness. Sickness is better and health because it sucks us into the presence of the Savior. And so I think that's really the sweet spot of Spurgeon's ministry. You know, he preached uh, a, a gospel of light out of his own darkest wells. Right. He, he faced many difficulties, many challenges, um, both physically. And, and one of the other challenges that, that he seemed to face came in the form of criticism. So Spurgeon mm-hmm. faced a great deal of criticism from, you know, newspaper reporters, from other preachers, all, you know, a variety of voices during his day. As pastors today, we we too face criticism, and oftentimes that criticism comes from uh, maybe disgruntled people within our own churches. How would you encourage pastors today who might be facing some of that that criticism, and how did Spurgeon kind of uh, work through that criticism that was coming mm. at him from from so many different angles. Well, you know, when he when he moves from the country to the city, uh, he gets criticized for not being formally educated. He gets criticized for having a thick country accent. You know, it's sort of like someone uh, from the Duck Dynasty tribe moving up to Manhattan to live. You know, I mean, they would stick out, and Spurgeon stuck out. He was not uh, of the gentry class. And he was so poor, he could have been orphaned as a child. His parents had to give him away to to his grandfather. And so here you have somebody who doesn't really fit in. And yet he becomes so popular that he does receive a lot of criticism in the press. He received it in London uh, from the London newspapers, but he also received it from us. You know, before the U.S. Civil War, Spurgeon's reputation was assassinated. His character was assassinated because he hated slavery. And, you know, if you know anything about Southern Baptist history, that's kind of my tribe. That's kind of where I live. You know, Southern Baptists broke away from the Northern Baptists because, you know, we wanted to maintain a lifestyle of slavery. Spurgeon said that was sin. He called it man-stealing. And so what did Southern Baptists do? Well, well, they burned his sermons. Uh, you know, they would have a potluck dinner on Wednesday night and then a Charles Spurgeon 
you know, barbecue afterwards. They would throw his books onto these fires. Uh, they issued him death threats. I, you know, listen to this death threat. If Spurgeon, the pharisaical author, should ever show himself in these parts, we trust that a stout cord may speedily find its way around his eloquent throat. Oh, my. I mean, imagine reading that. You know, someone posts a death threat on Facebook. Right. You know, how, you know, may, you know maybe people in ministry don't have death threats all the time, but, you know, what kind of lessons can we learn? I think there are, I think there are a few of them. You know, oftentimes uh, Spurgeon's wife, Susanna, had to hide the, the morning newspaper from him. I think shielding yourself from criticism, uh, and, and maybe that's not even the best word for it. You know, criticism comes from a very positive Greek word that means to judge. Uh, I think cynicism is really what got uh, under Spurgeon's skin. Cynicism comes from, from a word that means dog, actually, uh, canis. And so not only did she hide the newspaper, he shielded himself from it, but I, I think also he learned from it. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it was part of that anvil experience of his ministry. Very often he would listen to his critics, his cynics. Uh, maybe they didn't, maybe the arrow, you know, didn't hit the target in the bullseye, but maybe they were somewhere on, on the target uh, outside the bullseye. Maybe they were right about something. And so I think some lessons we can learn is, you know, in our own day with social media and all of that, you know, just because, you know, you tweet something, just because you, you fire back uh, at someone who's attacking you, you know, doesn't mean you have to forfeit uh, your fruit of the spirit. You know, isn't it amazing, Jason, how social media has a way of wilting our fruit of the spirit? And so I think that's one area that I'm particularly interested in Spurgeon. How does he respond to his critics when he doesn't ignore them? And I see a lot of fruit of the spirit, you know, gentleness, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. These are not things that I think define our social media experience today. And so I think that's a sobering word from Spurgeon's handling of criticism. Yeah, that is so good and so timely um, because, as you said, uh, you know, on social media so often, you know, it can be used as combat. It can be used, you know, as, as a weapon almost because you don't have to look someone in the eyes. Um, you can just fire something off. And, right. and, and just to, to hear that Spurgeon, when he was faced with, you know, people who are being critical or, or cynical of his ministry, that he really tried to, to speak out of a heart of humility Mm. And, and he uh, and he prayed for them as well. I mean, he prayed for his enemies. That's what Jesus taught us to do. Right. Um, he, you know, he prayed for the people in the downgrade controversy that he disagreed with. I mean, they stopped believing things like the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and the miracles. You know, Spurgeon couldn't uh, remain in fellowship with the Baptist Union, but he prayed for them. He 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 was a he was a winner of souls, Jason. That's that was his vocation. And, uh, you know, very often I think God loves to win the souls of the worst. You know, the Paul was a, a Middle Eastern terrorist. You know, God can change the heart of Spurgeon. God can change the heart of ISIS. God can change my own sinful, depraved heart. I mean, what a great God we serve. Amen. Amen. That's powerful. Now, you mentioned that, that one of the things that kind of characterized Spurgeon's um, preaching and how he handled um, his ministry was that— when a lot of other Victorian preachers, as you mentioned, were very dry, he came at it kind of with a different approach. How do you see his his kind of his methods? How do you see that um, in relation to what we see in the contemporary church today? 
Yeah, and you know, a lot of people ask me a lot, kind of along those lines, do you see Spurgeon in the contemporary church today? You know, who is the Spurgeon of our day? And I have to say there's not one uh, that I found, uh, unless you want to make kind of like a Frankenstein monster of different bits and pieces, you know, right. of other preachers. You know, maybe the passion of you know, John Piper with maybe the exposition of Keller. And, uh, but again, that's a monster. You know, I, I don't think in our own time we have a Spurgeon, and nor should we. I think God is raising up a new generation of preachers and uh, evangelists who, uh, who are more suited for our own day and age. But, you know, Spurgeon, uh, you know, I think there are some f- kind of fresh uh, principles we can take from Spurgeon's ministry uh, if we overlay it on our own. I mean, in one sense, Spurgeon didn't try to make his sermon sound fancy. Uh, he spoke the common language. You know, he followed that Protestant impulse to give the Bible to the common people. You know, was it, wasn't it Luther who said, I want the milkmaid to be able to read the Bible as well as the Pope? And, uh, of course, in those days, maybe uh, in her own language, she could read it better than the Pope. And so Spurgeon really championed that, incarnating Scripture uh, in the common vernacular. And I think today, you know, particularly in kind of academic environments, that's, I think that's really needed. Um, you know, Jesus spoke to the people, and uh, he didn't really, in the main, speak to the Pharisees. Uh, that wasn't his his primary target audience, even though you have Nicodemus and others, but he spoke English. You know, in the Victorian era, they often said Spurgeon spoke English, not pulpit, which shows, I think, you know, just the contrast and how Spurgeon's ministry was set in in high relief against the backdrop of his day. And uh, and I do I, I think he would be encouraged by what he sees in 21st century Protestant evangelicalism in America. I really do. I think he would be broken hearted to see what's happening in England right now, you know, brokenhearted. Uh, but I think he would be encouraged by, you know, people going back and reading. I mean, there's a revival, Jason, of people who are interested in people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley, and they're going back to go forward. I think Spurgeon would be tickled pink about that. You know, in our library, we have a whole wall of books he owned on on the Puritans, John Bunyan and these guys, uh, John Owen, Richard Baxter, uh, John Flavel, and uh, I think that Spurgeon would just, I mean, I think, honestly, Spurgeon would go to a uh, TGC conference. He, you know, he would go to a Desiring God conference, because there's, there's people, uh, you know, in our, in our country who are just so excited about seeing what the dead have to say to the living. And so, in many ways, I think that's one reason he's so popular today, because his words resonate with the words that we hear our own preachers uh, speaking. Wow, that's so fascinating, as you said, to to see how really so much of what he did really speaks into what we're experiencing today, and uh, that that's pretty powerful. I I want to just have a little bit of fun here, if if we could, and um, not to put you on the spot, but I I just want to toss out a few things to you, okay, <laughs> as if Spurgeon were in ministry today. If sure. Spurgeon were in ministry today, I'm just curious how you think he might address some of these different things that, that uh, we're looking at. So let me go toss out it. the first one. Here we go. The church's response to immigration. <laughs> Fascinating, because in Spurgeon's own day, you know, because of the potato famine uh, in Ireland, you know, there was half a million Irish uh, immigrated to London, to his city. And, 
in many ways, I, you know, he's very much open to that. I think in more, I mean, look, let me just qualify this. You know, it's, it's anachronistic to say what Spurgeon would say, you know, today, you know, I guess the best answer is I have no idea. Um, but looking at his own life and drawing a line from our day to his day, you know, I think in, in scripture, he finds a Christ who goes to, to the immigrants, he goes to the Samaritans and he goes to the people who are the outcasts. And, uh, so I don't know, but, uh, based on his handling of the Irish immigration question, I think he'd be receptive to it. Good. Okay. How about this one? How do you think Spurgeon might respond today to the issue we have seen with many youth and young adults leaving the church? Of course, there is a kind of exodus today, isn't there? I mean, I was talking with someone the other day. He said, well, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Um, I think Spurgeon would also say he was spiritual. But uh, to ignore, I think to ignore the church is to ignore the body of Christ. Spurgeon would react, I think, to uh, – well, in his own day, he reacted to kind of institutional Christianity in the sense that it was Anglican. But then again, he started his own institution. <laughs> it was a nonconformist Baptist institution. And, and so I, I think he would underscore the importance of the body of Christ, the church, corporately meeting together, privately meeting together, um, and working out the great task of discipleship within the context of the body. That always seemed to be a priority to him as it manifested in different ways. Very good. One more for you, Christian. How do you think Spurgeon might respond to the use of technology in ministry today. Yeah, well, you know, he was probably, I think I can say this, um, no, there was no one in Spurgeon's day that used technology uh, with a taller platform than Spurgeon. Uh, I mean, particularly with his sermon printing technologies, you know, he appropriated the latest gadgets, the latest printing press techniques, and distributed, you know, sermons around the world. They were translated into over 40 languages. And so I think he would ride that wave, you know, as long as it drew people to Christ. I don't think he would have a single problem with using any technology, regardless of what it was, to communicate the gospel. In fact, you know, he didn't have the, the great technologies that we have. You know, he didn't even have a chin mic. It's amazing. His voice could carry probably around 2,000 feet outside uh, that we've measured. And uh, so I think he would use it to increase uh, the, the kingdom message and expand the body of Christ. Absolutely, he would. Oh, thank you, Christian. That's uh, a lot of fun um, to kind of hear um, from your studies and your understanding of Spurgeon, how he might uh, respond to some of the things that we're facing today. And it sounds as if Spurgeon would be a fun pastor to be around um, here in the 21st century. Uh, hmm. I, I, just as you were sharing, I just am envisioning, you know, here this Victorian pastor, you know, fast forwarded to today and just couldn't even really fathom the impact that he might have Mm. Um, today. So, so, so much fun. Thank you for, for sharing with us today. Uh, it was great to have you on the podcast and, and really kind of opening our eyes up to what we can learn as we look to those who have come before us and, and how those things inform how we approach ministry today. And uh, certainly appreciate, appreciate your time with us today, Christian. Thanks so much, Jason. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, I would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a quick review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. So thank you so much in advance. And until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. 
for articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day. Visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.